Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCooey.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie's Barack Cohen, David Fletcher, and Alex Canizares discuss the landscape for increased fraud investigations and enforcement actions related to COVID-19 stimulus spending. Topics discussed include emerging enforcement issues related to Paycheck Protection Program loans and other spending under the CARES Act, and anticipated areas of focus for the U.S. Department of Justice with respect to the False Claims Act. They also discuss newly created investigative bodies, including the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, and steps companies can take to mitigate their exposure. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Hello, and welcome to this episode of White Collar Briefly. I'm your host, Alex Canizares, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Barack Cohen and Dave Fletcher. Today, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 relief, fraud, investigations, and litigation. To just set the stage a little bit, there are a number of factors driving COVID-19 fraud enforcement that we've been able to see over the last couple of months. One is just the high historic, really, levels of government relief spending, the CARES Act being the foremost example of that, exceeding $2 trillion in government spending. Another factor is a large new universe of recipients of that spending. Historically, the False Claims Act that we'll discuss in a few minutes has been focused on healthcare and defense contractors, and now we're seeing a much broader universe of recipients of federal funding that could be subject to enforcement action. There's also a large number of new and evolving legal requirements, and we're going to talk a bit today about the PPP program in particular and some of the implications of the guidance that's been issued that has caused some issues. Another factor I would note is is just the speed with which the relief spending has been distributed and that there has been a lot of pressure for borrowers and lenders to move quickly in the case of the PPP program in particular. And that creates a higher risk of mistakes and a potential for misconduct. And then finally, there's there's greater oversight. There are new oversight resources and public scrutiny that creates a, a more robust environment for fraud enforcement. And we're going to talk a bit today about the CARES Act and some of the new actors that have been set up, including a special inspector general for pandemic recovery. So let's start with the False Claims Act. And I'm going to open it up to my colleagues to think a little bit about some of the implications of the COVID-19 relief spending for FCA enforcement. So just to set the stage, Barack, can you just address what is the False Claims Act and what role do you expect it to be playing in the COVID-19 environment? So Alex, really, really high level overview. The False Claims Act is a Civil War era statute that was designed to enable the government to go after government contractors and private parties that essentially were treating the government through the submission of false claims for reimbursement. It has two basic prongs. There is a there's a civil enforcement remedy and there's a there's a criminal false claims act remedy. Unlike what I normally say about the law, when you're talking about the False Claims Act, it's really the civil portion that creates problems for people. I mean that criminal penalties are obviously always problematic, but the government is 
is really much more apt to uh, to pursue civil remedies in this context. And just really, 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 really bare bones. Essentially, what the statute permits is for private parties, typically whistleblowers, to file claims under seal, key TAM claims, accusing another private party of having having submitted some kind of false claim for reimbursement to the government. The private parties try to bring in the government to intervene in these claims because the government has a the federal government has a lot of power and they can help the the whistleblower in their respective lawsuits and the government decides whether or not it should intervene and sometimes it decides not to depending on the weakness of the case or sometimes it just brings cases on its own really high level that's the false claims act so let me address the second part of your question and the part that's most germane to our conversation today and whether or not the false claims act really has a a role to play in pandemic and post-pandemic enforcement. And my my quick response to that is absolutely yes, and we're already seeing that take place. We're obviously starting to see the government, the federal government, enforce with respect to pandemic relief. What we're going to be seeing in the very near future, I suspect, are lots of cases brought by putative whistleblowers and the government itself relating to false claims for reimbursement where the government has been, has contracted with, uh, with private parties, and there's been a perception of, of misconduct. I think we're going to see a lot of that. Uh, I think we'll see the main component of DOJ driving much of that because it drives policy. It drives a lot of the bigger False Claims Act cases. I think a lot of the a lot of the U.S. Attorney's offices, 94 U.S. Attorney's offices, will be involved as well. So it, it absolutely will play a role in pandemic enforcement. I, I certainly agree with that. And I think we're already seeing some initial developments that give us some real expectation that DOJ will be actively using the False Claims Act. In particular, there were some remarks given in June, now the acting assistant attorney general in the civil division, Ethan Davis, and he outlined DOJ's priorities to use the False Claims Act to address fraud related to COVID-19 relief spending and specifically mentioned three different programs. One is the Paycheck Protection Program, which I think we're going to talk about more in a few minutes, but he specifically called that out as an area where DOJ does expect to use the False Claims Act because the PPP creates opportunities for fraud, and we're going to address some of those areas of, of focus in a moment. Another is the Main Street Credit Facility, and this is a program that's meant to give loans to small and medium-sized businesses. And and another one that he mentioned was the Provider Relief Fund, and that's targeted to uh, healthcare providers. And and really what across all three of these, what what really triggers liability under the False Claims Act is a false certification or attestation of some kind. And what can lead to liability in the case of these lending programs is a borrower making a certification of some kind. And that is a requirement for, for each of these programs making a certification that is somehow false or or fraudulent. And the other aspect of the False Claims Act that I think, as you touched on, Barack, that that sort of differentiates the civil context from the criminal is the knowledge component. And I think one of the areas that I think is going to be very interesting to watch is how courts are going to be addressing the question of knowledge enforcement of the FCA and under these programs. Because what the the statute requires is it doesn't require any sort of specific intent to defraud. It can be sufficient if somebody acts with a reckless disregard. And so if they are making certifications or attestations of some kind and it's with reckless disregard, that can trigger liability. Now, what that means in the particular context of some of these programs is going to be an interesting issue 
to watch. And actually, too, just to touch on that last point before we move on, I think that's really interesting, the reckless disregard and knowledge piece. Because when you're talking about the pandemic and stimulus funds, you're talking about a crisis situation where people, companies are, are going to be acting with real desperation to try to save their companies. So how close, what's that thin line going to be between desperate conduct to save your company and, and reckless disregard to a false certification. Clearly, those are two different things, but I think in some circumstances, um, it's going to be hard to distinguish between the two. Yeah, Barack, this is Dave. I, I, I think you're right, particularly in the context that we know the government was looking for speed here. The whole point of the program was to get these loans made available in time for the, the businesses and the individuals who need them to be able to uh, take advantage of them. And so that line drawing that you're talking about may be particularly difficult in the context of a program whose purpose was speed in getting the funding out to the borrowers. One of the comments that Mr. Davis made that I think is, is illustrative or important to think about is he said, he did say that DOJ is not going to pursue companies that made immaterial or inadvertent technical mistakes in processing paperwork or that simply and honestly misunderstood the rules. That, I think, comment is is important to think about in, in the sense that DOJ really does have a lot of discretion in terms of the types of cases they're going to be bringing. And I think in the context of the PPP program in particular, there's just been a lot of consternation about what the rules are. And so maybe we can talk a bit more about the PPP program. And, and Dave, maybe you can help us just kind of set the stage there. What is the program briefly? And, and really, why is this an area where you think there are going to be some, uh, to the extent that you do, think that there are going to be enforcement issues that come out of it? Yeah, Alex, the PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program, which many refer to uh, informally as the PPP program, really is the, the centerpiece of the CARES Act COVID relief funding. And that's what's gotten the most attention. And, and it's a very popular program. It provides for 100% guaranteed loans by SBA certified lenders to small businesses who, that have been adversely affected by the pandemic. The loan proceeds can be used for payroll and other eligible expenses identified in the CARES Act. And those loan amounts can be forgiven if they're used for payroll and certain non-payroll costs. And in the context of the pandemic and the mandatory shutdowns that have been implemented in most places in the country for varying lengths of time, that relief was immediately very popular. There have been multiple rounds of funding and overall lenders have made 5 million or in the vicinity of 5 million PPP loans for a total of more than $500 billion. And, and so a lot of money, a lot of applications going in quickly. And that, as Barack mentioned earlier, that's part of what sets the stage for mistakes happening and in some cases, fraud taking place and areas where the government is likely to look for enforcement opportunities. I think, Alex, you were talking about the certifications or attestations that serve as the foundation for potential False Claims Act liability. I think in the context of the PPP loans, there are really three principal areas for that. One is 
in certifying eligibility for the loans in the first place. And that relates to the size status of the borrower. The companies that are eligible for PPP loans, for the most part, need to have 500 or fewer employees. There's some other size standards that can apply in certain more limited contexts, but really the most applicable size standard is 500 employees or fewer, and companies have to certify their eligibility in that way as a condition of accessing the PPP funding. And the thing that makes that a difficult certification is the 500 employee number is calculated to include not just the employees of the individual borrower, but the employees of all of that borrower's affiliates. And sometimes that can be a very difficult calculation, the extent to which a borrower has affiliates, which can mean, in some contexts, a minority investor. If that minority investor has, through contractual rights, or otherwise, power to control that that company. And so it can be a difficult analysis to apply the affiliation rules the way the SBA requires them to be applied and reach a good faith determination as to the size of your company. The second aspect of that certification within the PPP context is is whether the loan is in fact necessary under the circumstances. I would say kind of the the second big question that arose during the rollout of the PPP program because itself as well as the application requires that the borrower certify that economic uncertainty makes the loan necessary to support ongoing business operations. And so the question comes up, and it's a very fact-driven question, what really is necessity in that context? What does it mean that the loan is necessary to support the company's ongoing business operations? And different companies might reach different judgments about that based on their own unique circumstances. Where companies can get in trouble in the context of these certifications, and and particularly I think the reckless disregard, is moving quickly and failing to even think very hard about whether the loan in the context of that company's own circumstances truly is necessary. And finally, there's a forgiveness element of the PPP loans, and companies also have to submit an application and related certifications that the loan proceeds have been used for the purposes that permit forgiveness. And so statements of fact in each of those three contexts, the the eligibility initially, whether the loan is necessary, and then whether the funds have been used in a manner that entitles the borrower to forgiveness, there can be missteps and false statements made in connection with any of those three steps. Thanks, Dave. And I, I think you know you touched a bit on this, but the, the fact that these rules for the PPP program have been issued in, in the multiple interim final rules that came out, more than 20 over the course of several months from April to June, 
And there, there were multiple FAQs that were issued by the Treasury Department and the Small Business Administration. And I think, you know, in terms of sort of understanding what the enforcement is going to look like, I think the timeline over which those rules came out and the fact that they came out in the context of FAQs and the like, it may be significant. And it also sort of underscores the difficulty of understanding in some contexts, you know, what the certification requirements are. And the necessary certification was one that drew a lot of, of consternation. So thinking about where we are now in the program and with borrowers, you know, moving into the, the loan forgiveness stage of the program, what sort of steps can companies take to prepare, you know, anticipate an audit, you know, whether they're above the threshold that SBA has identified of this $2 million, their loan value is above $2 million. SBA has indicated that they will review the PPP loans. But regardless of the size, what are the considerations that companies should be thinking about to kind of mitigate the risk of an enforcement action of some kind? Yeah, that's a, a question that all borrowers of, of PPP funds should be thinking about to the extent that they have not done so already. And, and part of the answer there depends on the stage at which the borrower is in the in the loan life cycle. The key I think for most borrowers is going to be documentation of reasonable decision making. And of course, if you have already submitted an application, received PPP funding, and spent most or all of those funds on authorized purposes at this point, but you never really did document the initial thinking on the eligibility piece and the necessity piece in the first instance, that doesn't mean anything necessarily about the validity or the good faith of the initial decisions. But what it does mean is it's worth thinking pretty hard about whether it would make sense to revisit the initial thinking and the, and the initial process for determining eligibility and deciding that the loan was necessary in the first instance and documenting the basis for those decisions. And ideally, having the the right people in the company with the authority to make those decisions, either making them in the first instance or ratifying the decisions that have already been made. I agree. And I think the other thing I would mention too, that people, and this really comes up in the context of the, the False Claims Act, but as, as Barack mentioned, those those cases are mostly initiated by whistleblowers, and so you know, being sensitive to not only you know within the context of the uh, PPP program dealing with the SBA, but the the risk of whistleblowers is sort of a separate set of risks and, and, and considerations that companies need to think about and factor into their compliance programs and you know developing internal controls and ethics programs and and having those compliance programs in place is an area that can prevent a problem at the front end but it's also an area that DOJ will look at if if a company is involved in in an enforcement action under the FCA DOJ will look at the existence of a compliance program when determining you know whether to give cooperation credit and and, and the appropriate amount to to settle a case for so these are issues that companies definitely need to think about, despite the uh, you know difficult circumstances that people are under right now. So, uh, Barack, I want to turn it over to you and and get your thoughts about what are some of the parallels that you see to where we are now compared to the reaction to the financial crisis in two thousand eight. 
because the, the financial crisis resulted in a lot of government spending and then a wave of enforcement actions. And so do you see that as maybe the best parallel? And are, any, are there any real differences now in terms of the enforcement landscape that, that you identify? Alex, I, I do think that the federal government's response to the 2008 crisis is a useful parallel, but I also think we're diverging, already diverging from enforcement following that crisis in a few important ways that actually can be really illustrative. And before I really get into that, I, I do want to point out this is this goes to a comment or to Dave's comments about how to avoid PPP problems. You don't want to be the guy who spent his PPP loan to buy a Lamborghini and then crash the Lamborghini and is being prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida at this moment. Right. Not a hypothetical. Yeah. Not a hypothetical. Right, Barack? <laughs> right. Not a hypothetical. So that's one clear thing you want to avoid. You don't want to be like that guy. So anyway, I just had to mention that. <laughs> so I think as we all know, following the 2008 financial crisis, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act was passed and that created the Troubled Asset Relief Program within the Treasury Department and in particular it created the Office of the Special IG, the SIGTARP. And the SIGTARP has been, actually it's still, the SIGTARP's office still persists today. It's recovered over $11 billion in relief funds, misspent relief funds, and it's resulted in 380 convictions. It's brought some very big cases. As a prosecutor, I was involved to some extent in SIGTARP, uh, SIGTARP investigations. So it was a pretty impressive enforcement effort. Um, it also created a congressional oversight panel. So under the CARES Act, it, very similar to the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act, the CARES Act also creates a special IG, the special IG for pandemic recovery. It also creates a uh, congressional oversight body called the Congressional Oversight Commission. The really interesting twist is it also creates a pandemic response accountability committee of IGs that consists of IGs from nine agencies that are identified in the CARES Act. So for example, there's an IG from DOD, HHS, SBA, Treasury, in addition to 12 other agencies. And it's empowered to lead IG efforts to conduct oversight of about $2.4 trillion in funding. That innovation, I predict, will bring about a lot of enforcement to include False Claims Act enforcement as well as other kinds of criminal enforcement. In contrast to the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act and the SIGTARP, I really think that the SIGPER is going to be less effective than a SIGTARP. And the reason I say that is because the administration is already at odds with its support for the SIGPER. So, for example, the administration has argued that it should have oversight over transparency with respect to which kinds of which businesses have received stimulus funds and whether or not those reports ought to go into whether or not information regarding that funding ought to go into SIGPER's reports to the Congressional Oversight Committee. The uh, the SIGPER has half the funding that the SIGTARP had. The SIGTARP had roughly $50 million in funds. SIGPER has $25 million in funds, but frankly, a much tougher job because it's the SIGPER is going to be policing broader and more diverse array of businesses. So I, I predict that we'll see less from the Special IG. We'll see a whole lot more from the Pandemic Relief Ac Accountability Committee. And in fact, I think the Congressional Oversight Commission may, may be more active as well. They've already announced an investigation regarding a $700 million CARES Act loan relating to a shipping company 
questioning whether or not the Treasury properly valued the shipping company's uh, importance to national security. Just to bring it all back, I do think it's really useful to look at the SIGTARP and enforcement under the 2008 crisis, but I also think it's really useful to understand how how current enforcement is going to be different, just primarily because of the way the executive is treating the, the special IG, the current special IG. As you mentioned, Barack, DOJ has already brought a number of COVID-19 related fraud criminal cases. And so, and and a number of those are related to PPP with people such as the one you mentioned, taking out loans that they had no entitlement to. Now, it strikes me that those cases are, are relatively easy to bring in the sense that I think the fraud is pretty blatant, at least in some of the ones that we've seen press releases about people, you know, taking out a loan to pay off their personal credit card debt or somebody who overstated their payroll expenses. But what about the more difficult cases? I mean, do you see, to what extent do either of you see DOJ kind of bringing more complicated, complex white collar cases related to COVID-19? I think the commitment is there to bring the bigger cases. So you mentioned the the low-hanging fruit, the cases they were able to bring quickly. Quite frankly, initially I was skeptical about the kind of cases DOJ would bring, but then I was frankly impressed that they brought so many and so quickly. You can see why DOJ would do that. They would do that as a deterrent to prevent increased fraud. The reason I think we'll see bigger cases as well really points to the Congressional Oversight Commission and the Pandemic Relief Accountability Committee are, have already signaled they're they're going to be very serious about uh, about policing stimulus funding. And also it goes with some of the areas that I know the DOJ is already starting to investigate. We're aware the DOJ has discussed various areas of healthcare, healthcare and healthcare law, that it's going to be interested in ensuring do not get abused because of the pandemic. So the government is very sensibly relaxing certain requirements. So for example, requirements relating to telemedicine in order to make it easier for doctors to treat people during the pandemic. But by the same token, the DOJ has made it very clear that they will prosecute abuses of those relaxations in the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statutes if those abuses relate to COVID-19. Antitrust, typically a pretty pretty complex area of enforcement. Uh, the Antitrust Division at DOJ has announced that, that it's going to target parties that engage in collusion with respect to procurement relating to COVID-19, so bid rigging, price fixing, uh, customer and market allocation. So if you see DOJ antitrust stating this early on that it's going to try to make these cases, I don't think that's, I don't think that's just lip service. We're actually going to see some of these. It'll take a year or two for the cases to come around because white collar cases can be difficult to investigate. They involve a lot of paper, but I think we'll, I think we'll be seeing them for sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned the procurement fraud task force that DOJ set up, that actually predated the COVID crisis. And so it's kind of coexisting. The development of that initiative is is proceeding along, and it does appear that DOJ is intent on really ramping that up and coordinating with U.S. attorneys' offices on these types of cases. Yeah, and I, I can tell you anecdotally, by the way, I have a few active healthcare investigations, fairly large ones. And I, I am seeing line prosecutors and supervisors actually being detached for duty in Washington, D.C. to work on COVID-19 related task forces, which indicates the DOJ is very serious about bringing big cases. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I want to note, too, I mean, we did a kind of a breakdown when we were working on this to, of the enforcement actions that DOJ has brought. And DOJ has initiated something around 59 
enforcement actions between March 22nd and July 21st. Based on our analysis, 39% of those related to PPP fraud, and then 12% were in the healthcare arena, and then another 8% involving personal protective equipment fraud, another small 6% related to unemployment fraud, 5% related to price gouging, and then just 1% related to hoarding of, of equipment. So it's it's a quite a diverse mix if you look at just the number of criminal actions really focused on, on the sort of fraud and fraudulent conduct that they're bringing and in, in, in the criminal context at least. There's there's a number of different, you know, economic industries that are affected. And I think as you pointed out, there's likely to be a lot more of this activity going forward. So let's think about I I want to maybe open it up to both of you to just to kind of offer any any thoughts about risk mitigation that that you have and, and in this environment where there's high, heightened scrutiny for companies what what other sort of considerations should companies be thinking about now to you know reduce the risk of of some sort of allegations of fraud so i think consistent with the advice dave gave about ppp loans being very clear in documenting your decision making and understanding how reasonable decisions are made i think is incredibly important and alex i, I I really agree with your advice about maintaining robust compliance programs. It's easy to forget the importance of compliance when your company is struggling and you're grasping at stimulus funding so that you can stay afloat. But I I think this would be the exact wrong moment to ignore um, or even improve your your compliance. Yeah. and, And I would say too that when it comes to the documentation of reasonable decision making, it's important to not lose sight of what reasonable means in that context you know that there when you're talking about the certifications in in connection with the PPP loans there is often going to be gray areas things for which the answer isn't crystal clear necessarily there will be judgment calls that many borrowers have to make in order to make the certifications that the PPP loan program requires And that's okay. You don't need to have a decision made and documented that no one could ever disagree with. That's not the standard. But what you do have to make sure that you do, even in this difficult context, as Barack was explaining, you need to make sure that you understand the applicable rules. You have to make sure that the right people in the company are applying those rules in a way that is reasonable under the circumstances and that takes into account the unique situation that you as the borrower find yourselves in. And if you've if you've got the right people involved in those decisions and you document those decisions thoroughly, then you've gone a long way to to reducing if not eliminating the most significant risks associated with these kinds of relief programs. I certainly agree with that. And I would offer just two other areas that I think will be interesting to watch. Uh, one is private equity exposure. And you know, Mr. Davis from DOJ, who I mentioned earlier, in his comments, he specifically mentioned that DOJ is, is interested in the extent to which private equity investors could be liable under the FCA for failing to participating in fraud in, in companies that in which they invest. And so this really highlights kind of a new area. There's really, it demonstrates that the False Claims Act can have a very broad scope and it can apply to not only, you know, a company that is submitting a claim for reimbursement, an invoice of some kind, but also 
to a third party, and in this case, a private equity investor. And so, at least from DOJ's standpoint, he mentioned this in the context of the CARES Act, where a private equity investor conceivably is is you know turning a blind eye to some non-compliance of some kind. So it does highlight if, if for private equity types of investors that they they need to be mindful of this of this risk enforcement risk if they're in the companies they invest in. I was going to add to that. I, I have actually even pre-pandemic DOJ started to express interest in private equity and the False Claims Act. And just to go even one step further, I've seen actually I've represented private equity in circumstances where they they acquire a company then sell a company and that that company the acquired then sold company is accused by whistleblower of having violated the False Claims Act and the private equity gets dragged into that so that's certainly an area where DOJ is becoming more aggressive and the other thing I wanted to just put out there too is that there's been a significant increase in contract spending not just under the CARES Act but government agencies spending related to COVID-19 and there is an expectation that there are going to be billions of dollars in claims activity coming out of this crisis. And so th- there's a fraud risk there. One of the areas that government contractors are focusing on a lot recently is a provision in the CARES Act, Section uh, 3610, which allows contractors to be reimbursed for paid leave expenses and the like. Government contractors are familiar with the False Claims Act, but one of the things that's unique to government contractors, at least compared to you know other, other types of companies, is they, they, they do have mandatory disclosure obligations, at least under most um, contracts, except for, with certain exceptions, government contractors have to disclose if they have credible evidence of a False Claims Act violation. And so that creates another minefield that government contractors you know, need to think about. They're receiving contract funding especially uh, in this environment. Well, I think we've uh, covered some good territory here. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Barack Cohen and Dave Fletcher. And thank you for listening. This has been White Collar Briefly. Please tune in next time. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, Copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.